This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Disaster Brothers, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back for another episode of Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. When we think about places like Afghanistan, Yemen and Syria, the first thing that probably comes to mind is war. But did you know that 70% of areas impacted by conflict are affected by disasters? And that 30% of disasters triggered by natural hazards occur in countries affected by conflict. Today, we've got a really interesting show for you as we talk about disasters in conflict zones with someone who has lived in some of the world's most dangerous locations. Andrew, who do we have on the show today? We've got a great show lined up today, Josh. We're speaking with Rod Menner. He's a researcher and consultant who works on disasters, conflict, and humanitarian aid, and recently completed his PhD at the Institute of Social Studies of Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Rod was raised in a firefighting family in Chile, and as you mentioned, Josh, has since lived and worked in some really challenging environments across the world, including South Sudan and Afghanistan. We're gonna chat with Rod about disaster risk reduction in conflict zones. You don't want to miss this one. It's me, myself, and disaster with Rod Menner. Let's chat. Hi, Rod. Thanks for joining us on Me, Myself, and Disaster. Hi, guys. Pleasure to be with you. So let's start with a question about 2020. It's challenged all of us as the COVID-19 pandemic has spread around the world. And we've all had that taste of what it's like living in lockdown. But for you who has lived in some of the most dangerous places in the world, I'm sure nothing really compares. So before we talk disasters, can you take us through what it's like living and working in a conflict affected area? Sure. Well, um, first of all, I would like to say that of course, conflict-affected areas is a big and broad topic. So I think particularly here, we're going to be talking about high-intensity conflict settings or war-like or civil war-alike settings. Um, first, we need to be clear that war is terrible and affects people uh, hardly. So we don't need to take that uh, lightly at all. That being said, we need to understand that even in those settings, people try to live their life as normal as possible. People still find a job open new businesses, people send their kids to school. So we need to be careful that we don't get the idea that conflict zones are the same what news are always showing us, uh, neither what Hollywood movies show to us. Of course, there is a lot of physical violence, and that will be something important to to hear, uh, to consider, but that's not the reality everywhere. So the physical part, the physical violence of conflict zones, the bombs, Although they are terrible, they are usually not in the whole territory. There is always places where there is less physical violence. And this will be something important to consider, for example, when it comes to disasters, uh, risk reduction or other type of programs. What is more present in the whole territory is not the physical violence, but it's the structural violence. And that's something that we also need to be super aware of it. Uh, by structural violence, we call all this violence that is embedded in social structures embedded in everyday life of people. For example, inequality, uh, poverty, injustice. And those are the kind of things that actually are everyday affecting every person. That's really interesting. So in, in your opinion, then, those social uh, inequalities and, and those topics you've just brought up, 
Does conflict amplify those? Is that is is conflict an amplification of those? Yeah, definitely. I mean, conflict creates um, a lot of problems of governance, but also creates a lot of injustice. We need to understand that conflict, it's never this level of conflict, because conflict is always present in societies. At every, in every place, even the smallest group of people, they have conflict. But here we are talking about this grand level of conflict. And this grand level of conflict definitely creates a lot of inequality, injustice, and poverty, and creates also vulnerability. Yeah. That would be also important for us to understand for disasters. Yes. And I think that sets a really good backdrop for our conversation uh, on the podcast here today. Uh, I'm also keen to understand what triggered your interest in this research. You, you grew up in Chile. Uh, what, took you, uh, what, what took your work into this field and, and why disasters in, conflict, uh, in areas of conflict? Well, to be honest, I never expected to be working here at all. <laughs> it's something that evolved with time. Uh, Chile is a country at risk of several disasters due to the number of natural hazards that we have there. So I have been in relation with natural disaster responses as a volunteer since early years of my life. But then when I studied more professionally, I worked in sociology, and I was really interested in the relationship between social and environmental systems. So I went more into environmental sociology. But later on, when I start researching and understanding much more where social and um, environmental systems meet together, I found disasters. I found that disasters are these places where you have natural hazards, natural events, ecological systems in place, interacting with social vulnerability, inequality, etc. And then when it comes out, it's disaster. And that's exactly part of what I studied in my master also. Um, so this idea of how social and environmental systems interact. First of all, I put more emphasis on food insecurity. But from food insecurity, I went to droughts. And from droughts, just a new box opened that was disasters in general. I think that's a really interesting point because I think it's a it's a conversation that we've had um, with multiple uh, people on our show and with multiple guests is that no one, uh, you know, I think it was our very first episode that we had, I said that no one is sitting in their lounge room um, saying, I'm going to be at four years old, I'm going to be a, um, a disaster risk reduction consultant or I'm going to work in emergency services. The most likely thing is I'm going to be a fireman. So I think it's really interesting to understand um, how people uh, find themselves uh, in this field. And I think it's a really interesting journey. It's often one that people walk through multiple doors before they get to it. Um, but I think that provides people with a really rich experience that they actually bring to the field. So thanks for sharing that with us uh, through us today. Through your consulting work and research, what are some of those key factors? We touched on it just there at the start around vulnerabilities and some of the, the issues around conflicts. But what are some of the key factors that increase the vulnerability of areas after they're affected by conflict? And what is the level of understanding that these disasters aren't natural at all? Well, that last point, it's key for all this understanding. That disasters, as we know, or most people are really promoting, and it's a, a long-standing, over 100 years, I would say, close to by knowledge, that disasters are the result of vulnerability mainly and other factors, and conflict creates vulnerability. So in that sense, it makes, makes sense that more conflict equals more vulnerability and therefore more risk of disasters. However, the question that most people don't always know is, how is it that conflict creates vulnerability beyond its logical aspects of it? So one way, for example, is that conflict destroys uh, institutions, but it 
but it's also fractures and governance systems. For example, in Afghanistan, you have the internationally recognized government on one side and the Taliban on the other. But on top of that, within each of these governance systems, uh, within um, each international recognized government, there are also important internal factors in their governance structures. Then, regarding disasters, it is always said that disaster risk reduction and any other action should be led by local governance mechanisms. And the importance of strengthening these governance spaces is highly emphasized, for example, in agreements like the uh, Sendai Framework. But, but what happens when these governance systems are not present or are weak? For example, who will coordinate disaster governance? So uh, this is one way in which conflict through the fracture of governance systems uh, affect disasters. But specifically about vulnerability, that was the question. We need to also understand that conflict brings, uh, brings poverty and equality, as we said before. So sometimes force people to inhabit areas at risk of disaster. Also, conflict creates displacement, and that's also quite complicated uh, when it comes to trying to reduce specifically the uh, risk of disasters. But also conflict can intensify and not only intensify disaster, but also the frequency of them. Because many times conflict, what it does is create, for example, deforestation, or it destroys infrastructure meant to reduce the risk of disasters or affect water resources. So also conflict in that sense can affect and intensify the frequency of disasters. Finally, uh, it's quite obvious, especially in the presence of the war, is how much conflict can be an obstacle, for example, to effective disaster relief or recovery. So it's super difficult to respond in these kind of places. So in that sense, we need to understand that disaster not only, uh, sorry, conflict not only create more vulnerability to disasters, but also need to understand that also conflict is an obstacle to respond, to prepare, and then reconstruct from these disasters. I just want to pick up really quickly on that point when you were talking about conflict and displacement. It's something that we've seen in a lot of conflicts around the world, um, even in Andrew in, and in, in my lifetime around um, significant displacement of, of, of many communities around the world. Have you actually seen, and we know when we're talking about disaster risk reduction here, we know one of the key things when we talk about vulnerabilities is exposure. Um, have you observed through your research instances where displaced communities have actually been put into a into an area or a place of, of, of higher exposure to natural hazards? And then that's led to, you know, a, a cascading event of becoming, uh, you know, having a higher, um, a higher uh, exposure to risk. Yes, many times. I mean, in places where I work the most, like in places on the high intensity conflict, it's common to have what we call outside of the country refugee settlements. But inside of the country, we have what the people call IDP camps or internally displaced people camps. So usually these camps are built to protect people from conflict and to ensure access of humanitarian aid. But they rarely really considers which are the possible disasters affecting these places. So when you have a lot of people together in a place, really highly crowded, with most of the time really low livelihood conditions, and they most of the time are at risk of disaster, they're not aware. So a big flood can have like serious consequences, same with drought. And I have seen this in many, many places. So that's one of the examples that we can give about how really displacement sometimes bring people to these places where they're all together and they're at risk of disasters. I want to pick up on a point we spoke about earlier, which was about um, governance. And it made me really think because 
as someone who previously was pretty anti-governance, like to sort of make policy on the run, those sort of things, and operating quite effectively in disasters, get stuff done and make it happen. And now I've seen all the benefit of this and uh, having a really a really strong framework around a disaster governance model in certain, I guess, in terms of uh, being able to have clear ways of doing things set up before the disaster strikes. That, I guess, can't be possible in some of those countries where, where part of the government is just not functional. So that's just, yeah, that really rang true of some of the challenges and the scale of challenge you face in those sort of war-torn or, or I guess, countries in, in a conflict zone. So that's, yeah, really fascinating. But I wanted to know as well, have you seen, I guess, the impact of climate change um, affect vulnerability or exposure in the areas you've undertaken your research so far? Well, this is a really complicated topic. <laughs> Effectively, I mean, a climate, I would I would say climate change, climate already changed, and we are seeing the effect of it. Mm-hmm. It's, we need to be careful when we are still talking about this, something that will happen. I think it's happening. It's already. happening now, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you can, yeah, we all can see it around. But we also need to understand that I think the exact number is 83, the last stats that say 83% of disasters are related to extreme, uh, extreme weather events, or climate-related events. So it's not a lower number. And if we are saying that conflict, sorry, disasters occur a lot in places under conflict, and we are saying that climate change is also exacerbating extreme weather events, we are saying that climate change will bring more disasters in places under conflict. However, something that we need to be careful is that climate change is exacerbating weather events, not disasters. And that's something that we need to be really clear. Disasters are socially constructed. Not necessarily because we have more extreme weather events doesn't mean that we need to have more disasters. Mm. And this brings, again, the relevance of governance, the relevance of or the importance of prevention, the importance of adaptation, and DRR. However, DRR, as we know, most of the numbers in the world, 95% of the expenditure in disasters are going to response and reconstruction. 5%, 10%, and figure says, is to DRR. And in places on the conflict, I would say to there that it's less than 0.5% that goes to DRR. So all these come together, climate change, the need to more focus on DRR and prevention. However, there is not enough uh, funds and focus on that processes. I guess governance is one way of doing that though, isn't it? If we had sort of proper governance and we could, we know that climate change is happening. We know that the, I guess the, the risk facing us is, is increasing. We need to do something about it, but having a really strong governance model is certainly a way of, of equipping people to, to be ready for this sort of thing. And speaking of readiness, I want to ask another question around, um, I guess what you have when you have multiple disasters. I know Josh and I were in Christchurch just before the pandemic started this year and saw firsthand uh, how they've responded to, to multiple major disasters and built, I guess, a level of resilience. And I was kind of going to ask you as well around what happens in, say, somewhere that's been impacted by conflict. Do you think places like that, um, well, are there communities that build stronger connections, build a great awareness of risk and build a level of resilience to future events if they're living in, say, a conflict-affected area based on, I guess, their exposure to previous events? Oh, definitely. I mean, people affected are not communities. We can talk later why communities are not a concept that uh, I, at least, and many others, we try to avoid. But people affected uh, either by conflict or disaster, of course, they develop levels of resilience and how to cope with the disasters in the future. However, as mentioned before, conflict affects those coping mechanisms. And I can give a little example. In South Sudan, in the northern part of South Sudan, people is constantly affected by drought. And this has been recurrent for centuries, maybe. 
And people knew how to deal with this drought. People knew that when the drought was really severe, they can sell some animals, go to the market, buy some seeds, or sell some things and buy what they don't get. What happened now? With the conflict, roads are closed or moving to next places or close by places is quite dangerous. So your traditional coping mechanisms are destroyed. So in that sense, this idea that people learn from a disastrous event and become much more resilient, it's true. But in places on the conflict, you need to bring on top of this the idea that conflict will destroy many times or all be an, a strong obstacle for those coping mechanisms. And also we need to also not to under, under, underestimate the role of mental health and trauma. People, not only place on the high level of conflict, I mean, you can see it up there in Australia or down there, technically, depending how you see the map, um, in Australia, that people many times end up with, you know, with a lot of trauma after disasters or even small conflicts. And mental health is something that, of course, will affect coping mechanisms and resilience of people. So generally people learn, people become more resilient, but we need to be careful to sanctify the process. We need to be always more reflective of what is behind that resilience sometimes. Let's come back to that point um, about community. I want to unpack that because when we were planning for this podcast and we we're having a bit of discussion with you, it was a little bit of a, um, it was a, a learning moment for Andrew and I. And I mean, Andrew and I started this podcast because we wanted to learn and um, we wanted to learn more. We wanted to learn from individuals like yourself and professionals from a right around the world and, and bring all those experiences together and share that learning with, with our whole industry um, across the globe and with our listeners. And this idea of community, um, you shared some really interesting thoughts about that. I mean, I wrote a paper for work today where I probably mentioned community about 50 million times. Can you unpack that for our, our listeners, some of your thoughts around community? And like we've been having a lot of discussions on the podcast around how we need to think about language and semantics around natural disasters, how we may need to actually bring community into the same arena and start having a conversation about that. <laughs> wow, that's a beautiful question. Uh, the problem with community is that it is like a buzzword, you know, it's a tricky word uh, that I avoid to use, or if I use it, I use it carefully. And this is not just my ideas. Other authors like Professor Cannon, for example, also reflect upon. And the problem with the community is that present the different aspects that we need to observe carefully. Uh, first, people tend to use the word, uh, the word community to justify or beautify their actions. Uh, for example, if you say, we are having a response plan, sounds okay. But if you say we are having a community-based response plan, sounds, wow, you mentioned community, that's beautiful and that should be all right. So people tend to put community many times because it sounds nice and somehow, somehow also seems to um, legitimize your actions. But actually communities, if we reflect a bit Further, first of all, never includes everyone. So, and that's really important to ask the question, who is a community? Because usually when we end up talking and coordinating with the same people over the time, all of the time, and usually the people in power in those places or in particular positions. Second, uh, we also have a romantic idea of the notion of communities that communities are a group of people where everyone gets along, uh, they have common goals, and that usually is not true. In, in, in the communities, there is also a lot of conflict. What is 
actually completely normal in any social group. In every community, there is also differences of opinion. So we need to move beyond this romantic idea of communities. And in that sense, the idea of community, we can say, is like a, it's like a myth. Um, there is this little experiment uh, that I like to do in every place that I go uh, to do any res- kind of research. And every time that I go to a community, I like to go to any person there and I ask them, who is the person who lives closest and furthest from you in your community? So what I'm trying to do with this is to kind of identify the geographic geographically, uh, the geographic boundaries of that community, so to say. And then I go and I ask two other actors similar questions, like the, I like I go to the local government, NGOs, UN, uh, disaster risk uh, managers, etc. And I ask them who is or what are the limits of that particular community. And I always find that each actor gives me a different answer about the geographical boundaries or who they are or how they are defining that community. So we need to stop using the word the word community just to justify our actions and we need to start to be more critical, more reflective. I start asking ourselves uh, who are this group of people with whom uh, we're going to be working with? Uh, how are we defining them if it is geographically? In the reality, we we'll start asking more critically, who really is a community? I think that's a really good point because I think for me, I almost use it out of um, out of efficiency. It's it's a it's an easy word to it's an easy word to throw out there like a lasso and go. That's a, I've grouped that up and away I go um, while I'm writing a report or I'm having a conversation with uh, you know with a group of people. Um, so I think it's something that I, I'd really like to unpack. Um, maybe further another day with you, Rod, because I think it's a really interesting conversation. I think it's a conversation, like I said before, as we're having a conversation about natural disasters and and how we how we utilize that language. I think this is the next frontier that we need to start having having a conversation around because it really does affect how you actually work with groups of people and how you work with individuals um, and how you actually apply different disaster risk reduction methodologies, um, understanding who you're actually working with. It's the next resilience, the word. I just don't like the word resilient either, but it's a word that's so overused and we use it all the time and communities that word now. Just shove it in there everywhere to sort of make it sound good and make it sound happy. But really we can, can, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to just come back one point though. Um, around how Andrew was asking and you unpacked really eloquently, uh, Rod, around this idea that um, through conflict, people actually develop, a, a, you know, a form of resilience. But I'm, un- I'm wondering around the opposing scenario to that. Uh, say, does a disaster actually, uh, say, say a disaster creating conflict. Um, I can think of, of many areas in Australia where, for example, a debate about land clearing to reduce bushfire risk can very quickly become a contentious issue. And it's something that we've seen through black summer fires, um, you know, some of the aftermath in this, in, in some of our communities. And, and this has led to significant disagreements uh, amongst groups of people. And, and I'm going to use the word communities. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can you unpack how this kind of unfolds in a, in an area of conflict? Yes, I mean, if I understand um, the main idea is that not only conflict can create uh, disasters, but also disasters can create, trigger, exacerbate mm. the risk of conflict. Yes, and this is not only high intensity conflict or war zones. I mean, this is at every level. Every time that you do something disaster related action, you need to understand that you can trigger or create conflict. 
It's just a matter of building a flood protection wall in a place, and you are changing the amount of water up and down river. And that means that the one community might see that the upper community, community, <laughs> let's be careful with the word, <laughs> the people living in the upper part of the river, you know, they install, they have this beautiful flood protection wall, but that is affecting my level of water. And that also can create conflict with these, these two groups of people. And like this, we can have hundreds of examples of how disaster-related actions can also create conflict, also at the response level, during the reconstruction level. So in that sense, we need to be careful that all the disaster-related actions that we uh, implement or have any project needs to be uh, conflict-sensitive because disasters are not only politically created, but all action related to them is political as well. And when we say political, we are saying that uh, they have some level of power involved, some level of influence, and also that they seek to carry out some agendas. And with this, I'm not saying that people is mean, but we must be honest that, that we all have a certain agenda associated with our actions. And this is also present in any, in any disaster-related uh, project, program, and any action in reality. And I think some of our listeners um, here in Australia have probably seen that play out a little bit in the mainstream media around our recovery after uh, after our Black Summers. There's, there's a lot of conversation, um, and I would go as far to say as conflict that's that has that has happened in some areas around around Australia. You know, how do we best spend the money? Where does the money go first in communities? What do we tackle first? What means the most to our communities? So I think that's something that will really resonate with our listeners um, as they see it actually play out uh, in in our mainstream media. Just want to shift gears a bit here. Uh, Rod, many of our listeners would be well aware of the disaster life cycle, you know, prevention, preparedness, response, and recovery. Uh, and as more and more disasters occur, we're seeing that life cycle actually shorten. And something that we've seen here in Australia is actually that it's become non-linear. I think a lot of people have thought about that process as being a linear process. But I think for us, um, we we kind of always knew that it was non-linear. We always talked about how people could be in different stages. But I think the last 12 months for us has really shown us around communities all around the globe that it it is definitely not a linear thing. Um, It is almost becoming um, cyclic. And even as recently with our bushfire affected communities, they were barely into recovery and then impacted by COVID-19. And then even just before that, we had floods in some of those areas. How does the disaster life cycle apply in a conflict-affected country? Well, that's a, also an important question to, to, to reflect about it. Because as you said, in practice, we know that the disaster cycle uh, is not linear. Everyone who has been practicing in this, you know that is true. But the other thing that we don't understand sometimes, or we need to be reflected, that the idea of the disaster cycle is just a model to understand what is happening. But it doesn't really try to reflect what is really happening out there. And one of the big nuances is that disaster not only can, but commonly co-occur with other disasters. I mean, there's a huge relationship even between things like bushfire, for example, and floods. That sounds logically, uh, in our mind, maybe contradictory, but it's not that contradictory many times because bushfire sometimes clean forest, and that means that in the next season, water can run. So while you have multiple disasters, co-occurring in the world, for example, now with um, COVID-19, the cycle of disasters is still seen as one-to-one. That is, one cycle to manage one disaster. The cycle 
or disaster management almost never includes or reflect, for example, on this co-occurrence of disasters. In terms of places and the conflict, the problem with the disaster cycle is that the disaster cycle, especially relating more, trying to put an emphasis on prevention and DRR and the relevance of this. But as we have been saying so far, in place on the high intensity level of conflict, in place under war, usually that part of the cycle is almost not present. There is no map prevention. Pretty much everything is response. And even recovery is not in the way that we would expect it in normal traditional uh, disaster recovery and reconstruction programs. So we need to understand that the idea of the cycle is not really present. There is not only not linear, but it's not only present with some part of the cycle being quite schemed in the sense. Let's talk more now about preparedness and prevention. And I want to talk about your field work that you've done, uh, because I imagine you've met a lot of people in conflict zones during that field work. Can you take us through how, say, women and children can be most at risk in these conflict areas? And are there any ways that as practitioners, we can support and empower these groups, women and children, to become more prepared for disasters? Well, that's a great question, because we know that disasters do not impact people equally. Uh, not only people with different resources, financial resources, but also between gender and age. So that's something that we already know. Uh, and in that sense, we know that disaster-related uh, disaster projects or programs need to be gender sensitivity, or gender sensitive, sorry. However, many people think that it's just a matter of they have equal number of women and men participating in the projects. And actually, we need to go beyond that idea because we need to start understanding exactly which are the particular risk, gender-related risks, for example, or gender-related conditions that places a person at risk. So in that sense, it's not enough to just say, oh, yeah, in my program I have equally number of men and women. I need to start understanding which are the particular conditions that make this particular woman at risk or not. And which are the particular risks also that put men at risk that is not exactly the same and children. And we also, I think, every day more, we need to start understanding that the gender-sensitive approach cannot be binary, cannot be just uh, men and women. There are many other uh, groups or how people self-identify gender-wise that we are not always considering in conflict-related or, or disaster-related agendas. Um, yeah, so I would say this is a question that the answer that I'm giving is not particular to conflict-affected zones, but I would say it's exactly the same everywhere. Sadly, I still see a lot of projects that they, are, they say on paper, oh, yeah, we have a gender, you know, we are gender conscious, but in reality, you are not. It's interesting too because, and just coming back from a few days in a flood zone, it really seeing our communities becoming more and more diverse, more multicultural. We really need to have a ta- like a really tailored approach for these different groups of people um, of different whole spectrum of people out there in the world. And one single message to prepare and one single sort of action will not change the behaviour of everyone. So it really requires, I guess, that approach whether you're in a, in a conflict zone or not. So it's really a, a complicated thing that emergency managers need to think about when working with communities needs to prepare them for these sort of events because it's not just a one-size-fits-all model. It's not going to work. And I think what I'm what I'm hearing today is that in, in, Rod, in Rod's world, conflict will always happen and as will disasters. But just to wrap this kind of – this part of the conversation up, Rod, what are some of the key principles that you could help um, our listeners understand that you use when you're, re- you're trying to reduce disaster risk in these areas? 
First is to be able to communicate with people what you just said. It's to acknowledge that conflict and disasters are interrelated because it is something that most people don't think about it and don't really understand how much they are interrelated. And not only in war zones, as I said, it's everywhere. I mean, I have doing research about conflict and disaster in non-war zone affected places. Uh, even in Australia, you have a lot of small level or local level community conflict, community, no, but a small local <laughs> conflict affecting disasters. So first of all, is opening this box and really trying to explain people, especially disaster managers or people related in this field, that you need to be aware about Conflict. And conflict is a word that for a lot of people is a big word, and they are really afraid when they hear conflict. But you can just call it difference of opinion of people. That's also a conflict. If we will take it, which is the definition of conflict, it's no more than that. It's two or more groups that they don't agree in something, or they see that the other one is affecting your own or preventing your agenda uh, to meet its goals. Second, especially, and now it's more, I want to put a more focus in high-intensity conflict settings, is this to strengthen or, or bring on the importance of DRR. In places under a lot of conflict, responding is super complex. Um, it's dangerous, it's expensive, it's complicated, and the level of logistics needed are massive. Therefore, as much as we can prevent or reduce the risk of conflict to happen, the better. Sadly, for that we need uh, first, acknowledgement that conflict and disaster relates. Second, willingness to fund and to promote disaster risk reduction projects in these places. But that's something that's still not happening because people still think that in places on a high level of conflict, it's almost impossible to have disaster risk reduction. And second, many donors, people think, how am I going to invest in something? Like, it should be long-term efforts when things are really changing every day I don't know if the project will be manageable in one more month. I don't know if the infrastructure that we're going to build is going to be destroyed in one more month. So I think there's a lot of understanding that we need to uh, start building up and then sharing that understanding that it's possible, but it needs to be conflict sensitive and many other conditions need to be also uh, in place, but it's possible. So I think that's one of the first things that we need to start doing is talking about this, talking about how disasters interrelate with social conditions how really disasters interact with social life. I think what I'm taking from this really is that the the effort, I guess, of the, the notion of conflict is kind of like a state of, of I guess, social interaction and a very sort of extreme state because we've got that, that spectrum again of, of people who are in some sort of state of conflict, which is very small, through to people who are in sort of full-on combat and battle. And, and they so, those same principles apply anywhere, I think, where you've got communities who might be isolated and quite away, away, or they're, they're just different to, I guess, the, what we're used to. And, and having a really strong DRR approach is going to be most useful. And you can't always respond to those sort of places. So having a really key way of, of helping them prepare themselves is going to be most important. And that applies in a conflict zone or a non-conflict zone. So coming back to what we said at the start about um, governance, it's something we've heard from all our guests on the podcast who keep saying that strong governance is key to reducing disaster risk. So how do we achieve this in countries where the government's at war or not able to effectively resource disaster risk reduction initiatives effectively? Well, this is definitely one of the main challenges that we have because we still are having an idea of disaster governance as a top-down process. When in reality, we need to start aligning our idea of disaster governance much more with the notion of everyday politics, understanding that disaster governance happens between, first of all, the same people affected 
It's also disaster governance, how they organize their own responses. It's also disaster governance, how people in the everyday life, they reduce the risk of conflict or how they create the risk of conflict. So we need to understand that disaster governance happens on every level. And we definitely need to advance much more in how we connect and interconnect and we to develop a better sense of how these different levels interact. Particularly in places under armed conflict, as you said, we also need to understand that armed groups are also part of disaster governance. And that's something that so far the disaster community is not talking about. For example, in humanitarian aid, it's well known that you relate with armed groups pushing their own agendas. Uh, you have the Houthis in Yemen, you have the SPLO in South Sudan, you have, for example, the Taliban in Afghanistan, and usually the disaster community do not talk with them. You don't interact much with them when it comes to uh, develop disaster risk action projects. And you see them out of the spectrum of what is normally accepted as disaster governance. But we need to understand in that sense that disaster governance also is politically driven, based on geopolitical agenda, sometimes from donor countries in these places. So if we really want to start talking seriously about disaster risk action and conflict, we need to involve all possible actors, including the actors that yeah, armed groups, for example. So yeah, disaster governance is a big challenge. So we talk about how, um, you know, in conflicts and disasters and how conflicts exacerbate disasters and, and, and vice versa. But through us actually working in countries um, in high intensity conflict areas, and you were talking about before, and this is why it's the thoughts come to my head around, you know, we've got to be actually um, communicating and working with all actors, and that might be terrorist groups. Is there ever a scenario where while we're working, trying to implement disaster risk reduction strategies, because we're communicating with different people, we're trying to understand people's agendas, could it be that some of these programs could actually be a way to or, or actually move communities in a direction of actually starting to resolve some of their conflict? Yes, actually, there is a whole field of research, I would say, in disaster risk and uh, disaster studies, that is disaster diplomacy that actually focus on understanding um, how disaster-related activities do or do not influence peace. That being said, in many projects I also have seen, and I have been part of projects, when you bring disaster risk reduction into a, a people affected by disaster or at risk of disaster, and you also bring the conflict component inside, you understand that, conf- that your project might affect com- people affected or group affected by disaster, and you start bringing those people together to overcome, for example, a common threat in this case, there are many cases where actually you have been uh, fostering uh, peace building, for example, or reducing the risk of conflict. And I have seen that in, 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 in projects that I have been working with. So definitely, it's not only that they affect each other negatively, they can also strongly uh, support each other positively. And I think that's an important question because it actually helps us to switch the mind around these ideas. Well, that's what I'm starting to think is, you know, we had the conversation at the start there around how um, there's, you know, it's a struggle to get investment. If we actually change that narrative, when we flip that narrative on the head and we actually say that, you know, this has multiple outcomes, you know, possibly that's an avenue for further investment. Yeah. And we can also start fostering a common investment or common funds. Mm. I mean, so far we are seeing that humanitarian action funds are not the same as disaster-related action funds. They're not necessarily the same that people working in development programs, and it's not the same that people working in peace-building programs. So although I understand the need for specific funds, 
and the need for a specific knowledge, because at the end it's really technical sometimes and programs mm. when you work in wash and water sanitation, or when you work in food distribution, it's completely different than when you work in earthquake or flood prevention. But it's also really common. Every day see people see more how this in the end. This is from our point of view, for the technocratic point of view, the understanding that things are so divided. But when you talk with people affected, they don't see those divisions. Mm. People on the ground, they don't see those divisions. People on the ground, they see all this happening together. All these vulnerabilities come together. So the question is how we can start building bridges between technical and specific knowledge, but also a much more integrated approach, not only to disaster, but vulnerability in general. Either it manifests in conflict, disaster, poverty, etc. Many times when I go to people affected by disaster or one of having researching disaster risk reduction project, many times I ask to the people affected, the group is affected, okay, if this NGO or this kind of people come back again to you, and instead of saying to you that they work on disasters, they say to you, which are your main needs? What, where do you need help today? Most people don't say the flood first or the earthquake flood or the drought first. Most people said access, roads. More people say they want electricity. More people say they have, I want better health. But it's because we have funds for disasters that we import disaster-related actions. My question is, can we channel these funds to actually start addressing both what really people need, but also understanding the relevance of reducing the risk of disasters? Interesting mm. conversation. That, yeah, and and just maybe think too, because I know that um, one of the key things I think about disasters that people don't realise, and one is it's related to conflict, but two is how intertwined politics is with disasters, diplomacy and those sort of things. It's just so important. And it made me think that if you're a practitioner in this space and you wanted to go over and say work uh, or anywhere in disaster management, what do you see as some of the key skills? I know this is just a, a quick side question, but what what do you see as the key skills? So if you're a um, really good, have a really good, I guess, understanding of, of the political situation and good leadership, but are there any other like sort of ideas, I guess, or, or skills that you can think of, Rod, that um, perhaps if you're an emergency manager, are the key things you need, the key sort of, the key things in your belt to go into one of these disaster zones or any sort of, I guess, conflict-affected area and and be a real leader in emergency management? Well, first of all, be aware of the conflict and try to governance of these places will affect your job. Mm. And you don't need to see that necessarily as a threat. You need to see that as a challenge, but also as an opportunity. Because as we were saying, yeah, maybe some levels of governance is fractured. But it's always other levels of governance that are strong there. And those opens opportunities. Uh, and you also use the term uh, emergency managers. And that's also really important because there are many times on the ground, you see it all the time, that disaster people trying to differentiate themselves from emergency managers. And disaster people are all about vulnerability and disaster reduction. And emergency managers are more, you know, we need to save lives today. <laughs> All the rest is a conversation for tomorrow. So it's also about to really understand where you stand for, but also be critical of which are your own limitations. Because also disaster-related people, we also have we also have our own limitation with our too broad approach. Sometimes we need someone who, you know, rooted us and say, okay, we can talk about tomorrow. What do we do today? So I think it's also about to be critical about which are your own perspective, your own understanding, how you're using your language, as we were saying before, when you use resilience, when you use communities, uh, when you use vulnerability even, what does it mean really vulnerability? What does it mean these questions or these answers sorry, and these words? And how do you use it? That's also, so I think more than 
technical um, advices, I would say the advice is to be reflective, especially nowadays in the world that we have. We need to be much more reflective about our own practices. Well, I'll be reflecting after this and certainly not using the word community again, that's for sure. <laughs> I, think it's a really imp- I think it's a really important point though. I think, I think it's one thing that, um, that I know in my own personal journey, the, you know, it, the way I'm hearing is, is the ability to listen. And I think so, so often um, many of us that work in this field or get into this field is because we want to do good. We want to make a change. We want to make a difference. And sometimes the only way we see ourselves being able to do that is doing that through action. And sometimes we may actually need to listen before we take any action. I think that's, for me, one of the real key points I'm going to take away from today. Rod, I'd be really interested to hear, what are your thoughts on this issue? It's something that we don't talk about. I haven't seen it much in disaster uh, risk reduction programs. So when people is learning about this, we don't have much conversation about the ethics of disaster-related actions. We don't talk about which is an ethical framework. How can we produce more harm? Uh, maybe you want, yeah. So this is something that we need to start talking much more about. How really, you know, there's things that you cannot ask people when they are related, affected by disaster, because you can create more trauma, you know, you can re-traumatize people. Or you, so we need to start also thinking about which is the ethical way and in which context is ethical, because ethics are also cultural based. So we also need to be careful about these ideas. Look, Rod, we've really enjoyed chatting with you you today. It's been really interesting talking about conflict and disasters. And it's something that we don't really actually discuss in this field. And I'm glad that through this podcast, we've actually been able to shine a light um, on this area and help our listeners kind of understand disaster risk reduction on a little bit of a different um, setting or against a different context or background that, um, that they would actually uh, operate in. We've shared a few photos on our website at me, myself, uh, disaster.com for our listeners to take a look at. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today and all the best with your future research, Rod. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's having a pleasure. That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to people from around the world about their experience during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Learn more about disasters and follow our blog at disasterbros.com.